0: Out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I Would be through Straight. Hello and uh, welcome to the H- Lovecraft book club um, so I actually can't believe I've I've made it to this point I'm finally reached the shadow of the time uh, it's not his last story we still got Haunter in the Dark but I feel like I'm, I'm coming to the end of the stories he published and uh, under his name and then I, I realized ahead of me is still a whole bunch of revisions all the revisions he wrote at the end of his career so many of them he was so active in that market at the end of his career and then we still have to look at the the Robert E Howard letter is something I've been looking forward to but we're, we're reaching the end we're getting um, we're getting kind of over the hump here so it's it's kind of an exciting uh, moment for me so anyways uh, I'm gonna start talking about shadow over, over out of time I, I don't uh, there's actually quite a lot to say about the first half of the story we'll see how long it takes me to to say what I want to say about this um, the second half I guess is less thick or less dense than the, than the first half um I mean my initial plan was to do the first four chapters and the second first chapters uh in the next episode uh maybe I'll I'll cut that a little short depending on how long it goes because I think the second half is a little bit more about the exploration there's some good stuff in it but um I'm, I think the first half a little bit more interesting for, for most readers, this isn't this. I guess it's a horror story in the fact that's the supernatural is a you know interrupting the life of of, of someone. Um, and if this happened to to me, I, I'm certainly sure would be freaked out by it. But it, it doesn't have that kind of. It doesn't have like the body horror and the the terror. I think of of, of the thing on the doorstep. And why do I mention that? Well, they're both mind swap stories, and they're both written somewhat next to each other. Uh, the Thing on the Doorstep was written in 1933. A Shadow of a Time was written in 34 and 35. Um, it was published in Astounding Stories in June of 1936. So, actually, came out before The Thing on the Doorstep. The Thing on the Doorstep actually was the last um, story he, that was came out during his lifetime, um, at least of maybe not including a revision or two, but um, it's. You might read this and and think, ah, oh, another mind swap story. You might think, actually, another exploration of an ancient culture. It does both. And I think here the mind swapping is used to really explore another culture. It's kind of like what uh, um, that very very early story he wrote, uh, Beyond the Wall of Sleep. You know, was missing in a way. You know, Beyond the Wall of Sleep, you just get this idea that uh, of of mind swapping aliens going into human bodies to experience life on Earth, but you don't get a sense of the, the broader cosmology, the history, the culture of that, of that society. Just, it's just, we just get a much more micro view of it. In Shadow of Time, we definitely get the, the history of this great race, and it's, it's nice. So in this way, it, it kind of reminds us a lot about the Mountains of Madness or the Mound, uh, in that it, it allows Lovecraft to explore another culture in depth. It's the shortest of those three tales I just mentioned, though, it's um, the both the mound and the mountain of madness are longer it's this is more on the mound side of of length but I, I do think it's the shortest and actually in terms of its exploration of the culture of of in this case we'll say the great ones uh or the Ithians, i guess they eventually get called um but the great ones i guess is what they call the great race i mean the great race uh they are We get less, I guess I want to try say. We get less about their, their culture than I think we do in At the Mountains of Madness. Um, so anyways, I, I, lo- I think this story is really well-constructed, by the way. Uh, it's in eight chapters. Um, and the first half deal with... Uh, with kind of like... Are, is set essentially in Arkham. And the next four chapters are about exploration. So it's kind of like... almost like two different very different parts of the story, right? Which would make it interesting if it was ever adapted, I think. To kind of give a weight we'll to both. Because they're both about exploration, but the ones more exploring internally, exploring one's gene, dreams, one's memories, one's uh, the folklore, the culture, exploring that kind of stuff. Stuff we've seen a lot um, in Lovecraft. And the second half is exploring a place and a location. Again, we've seen a lot of that in Lovecraft. So he's combining two things he does really well has done a lot into one one story and he pulls it off effectively i think you know this is a one of his most beloved and well-known stories in fact i think the the yithian the great race is such an iconic character i mean it's it's the way it appeared in astounding stories you know that weird cone thing with the head on the tentacle and the antennas Round head, ten feet tall, right next to that small human. I mean, that's such an iconic image. Um, I think it's actually the cover of Astounding Stories that month was this this image. It doesn't actually make much sense because I don't think they actually he ever encounters them as humans. He he's in the body, right? But you know, to sell it as a science fiction story, I think the the cover of that looks really well. Um, yeah, and it's nice that his um his he, his career is is his his a, a contribution is being acknowledged by these big magazines at the end of his life. Um, you know, of course Astounding also published at the Mons of Madness at the same time that the Shadow Out of Time came. And I, I just wonder, you know, to what degree did these two stories, this year, nineteen thirty six, how much did this contribute to the popularity Lovecraft would enjoy later on after he died. Um, of course, some of that is, is of course, August or and the Arkham House publication project and all that. I don't want to belittle that, but, you know, the fact that having published in Weird Tales for so much of his life that these two massive stories, these massive, well-known popular stories came out in the same year in, in Astounding, um, must have, you know, is, is, I think, notable. And this is before, I guess, the like the heyday of astounding, right, under the the Campbell years, the forties, fifties. But, anyways, that's just a speculation. But it's it's certainly a big sale for him, at least in terms of reputation. So this story, chronologically, it's kind of a slow burn. It's like the first events happen. Um, What's the date? 1908. Like, the first, the story sort of begins in 1908 and it ends on July 18th, 1935. So it's 22 years covering his, like, this this whole experience. Much of his life, right? Like, the most important years of his life, too. Like, um, are bogged down in this. Um, it's, it's, I don't think he's quite done this before, right? Like, usually it's, like, a moment like Whisper in Darkness is like a, a season. Mountains of Madness is like takes place over a year. or So um, other stories are just like days or moments. But this is such uh, an extended period of the character's life, right? It's 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 his entire life, except for all intents and purposes, right? is is occupied by these things um now the story begins in a way that's familiar to the readers of at the mountains of madness in that we're warned not to explore quote it is for this later reason that i urge with all the force of my being final abandonment of all attempts at unearthing those fragments of unknown primordial masonry which my expedition set out to investigate um very similar right and so he's still as at the mountains of madness and it's they were written, you know, a few years apart, but they were published at the same time. So the readers may have you know, felt they were kind of getting something that this this writer is kind of obsessing about. But they both open in a very similar way it's with this warning. And it's kind of a justification for the story. But while at the Mountains of Madness, it's, it, there's an earnestness to it, this story... Is much more reflective, right? Because it's much more about his personal experiences and what's happened to him and his dreams and his, his life and his family. There's a, much, there's a more tragic element to it as well, which I think is adds something to the story. And I, I think it does display a, a different kind of sensitivity and appreciation for a different type of story and character. Uh, we get with this Peasley, prof, uh, Professor Wingate Peasley, no, Wingate Peasley is his son. He—he's a uh, Nathaniel Peasley is our is, is our narrator. You know, he's uh, he's a much more tragic figure than than Dyer. You know, at the Moans of Madness, Dyer just had something bad happen. He had a bad day, essentially. Um, I mean, Peasley had a bad life. Like his whole life is un- unturned by these these events. And again, it's just random. It's this is a very Lovecraftian, of course. It's just like the cosmos interferes in our life in random ways and. Not because, not to take it personal. It's just, um, it just happens to us, right? And he's very normal. He's, he's, he's not interested in anything to call. He's a boring economist. Which I'll, I'll get to that later on because we meet the other people that ha- get mind swapped by the great race. They tend to be like generals and scholars and philosophers. And then there's nobody economist from, from Arkham. Um, that, that, that I can't quite explain. But I, I, do th- I do appreciate that Lovecraft's trying to do this everyman uh, character here. And he changes. He has to change. He has to adapt. His whole life has to move, go on a different track because of these events. Um, so the story begins with this return to Arkham. So we, we know he's been to Australia. In, it's 1936, and he's returning on the ship to Arkham, writing down his story. Um, the story of Nathaniel Wingate Peasley. So this is all in chapter one, um, if I didn't make that clear. Um, so he, by this point, he had been writing in psychological journals for, for almost a decade. So he's kind of well known, but the story really begins in 1908, we're told, particularly from 1908 to 1913, a five, six, I guess, six-year period in which he had a strange amnesia um, so we're told that, but we get his background. His background, he's, he, we're presented, there's a little bit of race here um, in the sense that he's presented as, as being of kind of particular New England stock. Um, I am the son of Jonathan and Hannah Wingate Peasley, both of wholesome old Haverhill stock, end quote. Um, but you really do get the sense he's not like pushing. It's not about heredity. The last time he really does that is in the Shadow over Innsmouth, he's moved away from those themes partially. There are other interesting themes here about exploration, about cosmic horror, but I, I'm actually, you know, it's not in the thing in the doorstep either, or even Dreams of the Witch House. It's not about legacy, family legacy anymore. So that's the last story that really does that, I think. Um, you know, maybe some of the revisions get into that, but with the revisions, you're always dealing with something that's mixed, right? With... So that's a little bit Lovecraft, a little bit someone else. It might be all Lovecraft, but, you know, in some cases, but it's usually some kind of mix, right? Usually we can't give Lovecraft all the credit for those tales. Um, so what else about him? Oh, and then he's happily married, right? He's married uh, 13 years, married in 1896, three children. Um, and now we're told he only has relationships with one of his sons, um, a professor of psychology. It's the only one who still talks to him. That's uh, Wingate Peasley, um, also of Miskatonic University. But no one else has anything to do with him because of this um, amnesia. And you don't blame him, because it really does seem like this guy just went crazy um, in 1908. It happened literally during uh, a very boring sounding class, Political Economy 6. Um... History and present tendencies of economics. So this would, be, I guess, your sixth semester of economics. That's why it's juniors who take it. Happen at ten twenty a.m. exactly. Just at one moment, he's he just loses. He collapses and he wakes up as someone else. And this is five and a half years. Five years, four months, and thirteen days. He existed in this state until he kind of just went back to normal. Literally jumps right back into the lecture that he stopped. Uh, you know, five and a half years earlier. Um, but uh, he starts to get really weird. like he starts to study and know language. like he knows strange languages, but he also starts to study strange languages. He speaks differently. Um, and that's all explained why this is uh, throughout the story. The whole story come, comes together really, really perfectly. There's almost no really unanswered questions here. There's no audit. It's not like it's not like it doesn't have that bizarre. I think of like Dreams in the Witch House, where you're a little bit unsure quite what to make of everything. This story is much tighter um, and, and all everything that's kind of set up here, all the mysteries set up in the first chapter are more or less explained by the time you get to the midpoint of the story. Um Quote, even my speech seemed awkward and foreign. I used my vocal organs clumsily and gropingly, and my diction had a curiously stilted quality, as if I laboriously learned the English language from books. The pronunciation was barbarously alien, whilst the idiom seemed to include both scraps and curious archaism and expressions of a wholly incomprehensible caste, End quote. It, of course, reminds us very much of another kind of identity swap story, not, a, not really a mind swap story, but the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Uh, in which someone is, is found out, the villain is found out because he doesn't use the speech at the time. Right? This guy, this Yithian that's taken over his mind, that's what's happened here. No need to have spoiler alerts for a story of this old. He's, he learned this you know, in a library essentially, or maybe on some previous uh, adventure in some other time. So he, he speaks strange. Um, he's physically different, right, uh, a little bit. He loses interest in his, his, his academic career. He starts to investigate occult stuff, for instance. Uh, he's spending all his time in the college libraries, but not reading, psych- not reading economics, but, not, um, but reading all the strange texts, right? But characters in all of his stories, in this, you know, since Dunwich Horror are obsessed with reading. Um, and he becomes kind of a public figure. It actually kind of reminds me a little bit of, you know, the media plays a role in quite a few of his stories. This is one, At the Mountains of Madness, has a lot of media elements. Um, I think Dream of the Witch House, not so much. Uh, Shadow of the maybe a little bit. Um, Whisper in Darkness, the media plays a role these academic journals and academic debates. Dunwich Horror, Color Out of Space, these all are you know, the media plays a role in, like, exposing these horrors. But we, what the, the idea of the media here is that they're, they're very fickle and they have a short attention span, right? So the media very quickly gets bored with whatever Nathaniel Peasley has to offer them in his, his weird amnesia. Um, what else does he do? He travels to remote areas, um, you know, becomes involved in cultish activities, uh, occult activities. Quote, there is tangible proof in the form of marginal notes that I went minutely through such things as the Kump der de Goul, Ludwig Prinz de Vermes Mysterius, the Un Ostersprechen of von Just. That's a Robert E. Howard story, or, or, or invent, uh, Robert E. Howard invented text, I think. Describing fragments of the puzzling Book of Ibn and the dreaded Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Hazared. Then, too, is undeniable that a fresh and evil wave of underground cult activity set in about the time of my odd mutation. I guess that's a little bit of a mystery in the story, is what exactly they make of the cult activity. It seems that he's pursuing knowledge. You know, it doesn't seem the the Yithians, the great race, are nefarious types. They're not. They're curious. They're explorers. They're historians. They're philosophers, scientists. They're not. They're not, they're like into Rising Cthulhu or something. So they're not quite that, but he's still, there's a curiosity about them, right? So maybe that's what leads him to participate in this. But the fact that there's an increase of activity, of cultish activity, after his arrival suggests that maybe he contributed to expansion, it, expanding it somewhat. Um, what else? Playing around with technology. He installed the mechanism, of the most curious aspect. Um, yeah, there's a little bit more here about the cults, too. Maybe that's kind of a bit of a, something I would like to know more about what's actually going on with the cult activities. It's kind of dropped by Lovecraft after the first chapter. Quote, uh, On the evening of February, September 26th, I dismissed the lightkeeper and the maid till noon of the next day. Lights burned in the house till late, and a lean, dark, curiously foreign-looking man, man called in an automobile. It was about 1 a.m. that the lights were last seen. At 2.15, a policeman observed the place in darkness, but with the stranger's motor still on the curb. Um, but he's a lean foreigner. So a little bit of uh, the, the insidious foreigner is still here in this Lovecraft story. So he's not entirely immune from this. But I do think overall he's kind of moving away from some of those uh, those themes of like a culture besieged by, by immigrants. Like I, I guess the peak of that might be horror at Red Hook or to a certain degree at the shadow of Ryan's mouth. But anyways, we get a nice survey of all the weird stuff he was into during this amnesia and then we're told he just one day woke up. It was, um, And, it, and he, he woke up as if it was still that morning, that lecture in 1908 where he starts to start continuing on with the lecture exactly where he left off. Um, so that's chapter one. So chapter one tells us that period 1908 to 1913 and sets up the context that he's writing this on this boat returning from uh, Western Australia and telling people don't go back there. Um, I think a funny, I think other people have noticed this, but a funny aspect of this is someone of the members on this expedition that Peasley ends up going on to Western Australia is Dyer, who just warned. in at the mountains of madness, like don't dig up this weird stuff. Don't go back to Antarctica. It's really messed up. But you know, a few years later he gets this chance to go to, um, Western Australia, and he's all for it. You know, geology, let's, let's dig it up. It's a very similar kind of expedition. Actually, it's worse because the Antarctic expedition initially was core samples, right? This one is actually trying to dig up ancient cultures. Should have known better. But um, now, by this point, when we get to chapter two, where it's really about his return to daily life and the beginning of his, his dream. So much of the next three chapters, I don't know if it's even a good idea to go through this chapter by chapter for at least for these next three because so much of this involves around a long period of, of Peasley's life. We're talking like over a decade of his life in which he's confronted by dreams. He's confronted by, by the breaking up of his life. He loses his wife. He loses his kids. Only one of his kids Really hangs out with him anymore. He can't really get his job back because he can't be an economist anymore because he hasn't kept up on the literature. It's such a, it's such a realistic academic trouble, right? Like I, I know this because I've been in Asia for a long time, and it's like really tough if I ever want to get back into professional history. You know, especially in the U.S., right? I mean, be published, I could do some things with publishing, but I'm kind of out of the loop, right? I haven't been going to conferences, I haven't been reading all the recent scholarships especially these three years I've been in China so I I go and jump into Lovecraft nonsense right that's it's it's such a you know realistic kind of struggle you just can't get back into that his family is gone that's another very realistic trouble like people have bouts of alcoholism or you know bouts where they're in depression and they come out of it better you know they 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 fix whatever was afflicting them, you know, they hopefully they can live a better life, but they often lost a lot as a result of that. So it's a very human experience and it's, it's, it's kind of a level of sadness that we don't often get in his stories, I think, to, to see the human consequences for just a normal family man, for what the, you know, the things that are happening. It's not the normal character, a single inquisitive young man like we've seen again and again. Now, Peasley's troubles are worse because he's had this amnesia and he never quite recovers from it fully. And it manifests mostly in, in uneasiness. Quote, vague dreams and queer ideas continuously haunted me. And when the outbreak of the World War turned my mind to history, I found myself thinking of periods and events in the oddest possible fashion. My conception of time, my ability to distinguish between consecutiveness and simultaneousness seems subtly disordered. End quote. So he's not totally right in, in the head by this. And he starts having these dreams, um, can't really get back into academics and he starts exploring other fields, right? This is worse for his academic career, right? If he said, okay, I'm going to go back and be an economist, catch up on the scholarship, get my job back. But he doesn't do that. He starts reading history. He starts reading occult stuff. He starts reading um, like a lot of psychology and that because his dreams are leading him to do that. He he can't really avoid that. And, and again, it's, it's bad advice for a, Academic to to do that, but you know I you know I, I think it's a good thing. I think it's good to to explore different things in the course of your life and try to master things. You know, I think it's it's like like that it, that ADD mind, right? Like we try to cure ADD. In fact, it's it's just another way of learning, right? And it's it's a good way to learn. Some people are very creative because they. Explore different things throughout their life, right? I don't know. That's a kind of a bold claim. But I think there's something to that. And, and so maybe Peasley is actually, a, on some level, it's a story of someone, you know, with a little bit of ADD in his life. He's, he got bored with economics, so he decided to go to study the occult for a while and study, get involved in weird stuff. And then after that, study psychology and dreams. What's wrong with that, really? Not too much. On that surface level, anyways, of course, there's much more going on in this, this story. Um, now, he, he does think about talking to alienists, talking to you know, psychologists, because um, he does feel very alienated. Both as a result of his investigations, as he thinks more about his dreams, he thinks more about what's happening to him, and he starts piecing things together. He does get a little bit disconnected from the world around him. Um, quote, There was, too, a feeling of profound and inexorable horror concerning myself. I developed a queer fear of seeing my own form, as if my eyes would sometimes see something utterly alien and unconceivably abhorrent. End quote. Now, this is uh, like a a subconscious memory of when he was in the Ithian body because it was a mind swap right so he was in the Yithian body and he lived five years that way in with the athians and when he looked down he was horrified at his body right now the memories were forgotten but they still exist in the subconscious right they appear in dreams and so he's got that visceral fear of looking down at his body which i've had those moments too when i gained a little bit of weight um but I've been exercising, so hopefully that weight is down, and I can lose that, that terror. But I know where he's coming from. I get it. I mean, the Ithians are huge too, right? The great race is ten feet tall, and it's, it's got a booty. It's a cone-shaped thing. Now his dreams kind of vary over time, and again, this is like these three chapters cover like ten years of his life and his experiences. Um, but his dreams start to be like I think they start out more like architecture and places and he has senses of, of locations architecture and, and, and even biology gardens and these things which you know if you think about so many of Lovecraft's dream stories they're involving strange architecture strange, strange gardens strange um, landscapes right? even from some of his earliest stories like some of his earliest revisions are really about dream uh, landscapes and dream cities and stuff. Go way back in this podcast to some of the, to the early, my early look at some of his revisions. And you'll see that that's there. It's coming back here, too. Um, and over time, he developed more and more of a picture of, of this, this world that he seemed to inhabit. Right? And it happens over the course of the war, which is kind of an interesting aspect, too, because how many people's profound sense of their place in the world or their sense of their place in the world uh, experienced profound change during the war. Uh, you know, this happens to millions of people during the war who just were horrified by the violence, horrified by their experience in the trenches, right? How many people came back from World War I like traumatized, right? And, and unable to relate to their family and lost their family, right? Like Peasley's experience here could have just been that of a soldier returning home, unable to fit in to his home world anymore, right? It's, uh, there's an aspect to it. I don't know if anyone's ever explored that, but I, I think you know this is, this is such a common experience. It's presented here as so unique, because you had your body taken over by an alien, in this case. but the, the general experience of like losing touch of who you are because of some profound trauma, and then, you know trying to make sense of it. And, and learning more about yourself as you do it. It's it's I think it happens quite commonly. But, you know, the loss involved in this too, the losing of the family. It's it's all very heartfelt. I and mean, I it's an aspect of the story I really, really like. So through a investigation of myth and an investigation of his dreams, and he goes to some of those same books that that he studied as a you know, when he was body and you know well the yithian studied when he took over his body uh, he's able to kind of piece together some some of what's going on and he comes now he gets the he learns about the great race partially through other texts like he goes back to these things like the un uh, austral speaking these kind of books which seem to talk about some of this stuff so primal myths his modern delusions that's the way he puts it combined to give him some answers and he finds out about this great race um and to make a long story short these they they time travel and space travel by mind swapping right so they're able they're explorers they're philosophers they're you know historians um they're really weird looking they're 10 feet tall cones with distendable limbs stretching from apexes speaking and clicking and scraping huge paws and claws so they're kind of intimidating, but they're, they're basically sort of peaceful. Not that they don't have any wars in their history, but they're not really a nefarious, evil entity. They're, they probably shouldn't be taking over people's bodies. But it's how they can know about the world. It's how they can explore the world, right? And how much violence do we commit in, our, in science? How much violence do we do to animals? How much violence do we do to the natural world in our quest to understand the world? So we're no better than the Yithians. Let's be real. It's like, yeah, they're ca- they're cap, they're taking captive people, but they they seem to treat them quite well, as much as they can. Um, um, and he gets into a lot of detail. Lovecraft takes a couple chapters here where he gets into a lot of detail about them. Like, you know, there's even ex- cases where some Yithians don't want to die, so they flip over permanently to another body, and this leaves the, the captive in the mind of a dying Yithian, and so. But they're honored, and even if they die, they get. they they get like they're memorialized they're allowed to explore the library of the of the great race they're given the freedom of motion when they go back though they lose memories of that except i guess the subconscious and the dreams um but it's it's really fascinating stuff if you if you don't haven't read this story yet i'm not going to go blow by blow with everything lovecraft says here but it's it's a really fascinating idea and again, they're not really the worst possible. I would say we're worse to animals we experiment on than the Yithians are with these, these humans that they, they borrow their bodies for for a few years. Um, they take pains not to kill them or, or harm them. Anyways, um, he kind of puts together some understanding of what happens to him. And so he, he kind of gets his life back together and he tries to, like, study a new field and he gets into psychology and his son is fairly supportive of him. His son becomes a psychologist at Miskatonic University. He seems to be only... There's not, it's not doesn't seem to be enough jobs to go around in this world. So a lot of people end up at Miskatonic University for careers. Uh, he can't quite get back into economics because he's too escaped from the field, but he gets into psychology and he's able to publish on psychology based on his own experiences. So he's able to look into his own... Yeah adventures and knowledge about himself and he can explore this kind of objectively as a as a scientist but also as someone who had kind of a psychological incident it's it's kind of reminds me of wilmarth's kind of exploration of folklore in whisper and darkness to try to put an academic shell around these personal and very weird experiences now through all these investigations academic exploring his own dreams, exploring the folklore, he's able to get a pretty full description of the great race. And there's a whole chapter here. It's chapter four, which I think it might be the longest in the whole story, where he just gets into all the different aspects of their life and their history. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, um, now, we also... It's also here we get the description of like their technology, their writing system. Uh, we get a longer description of their, of their bodies. We also get, uh, he starts to remember more of his experiences when he was at the City of the Great Race. And the people he talked to, and I mentioned this before, like the people he talked to are all these different aliens, right? It's really a wonderful experience for him. Because they all look weird. And in fact, in Astounding Stories, they had an artist, Howard V. Brown, it was, drew all this pantheon of different weird creatures. So there's like an elder thing here. There's... uh, all these other weird monsters. Uh, a lot of imagination went into the, the art here. I, Lovecraft didn't describe too much of this in detail. But the people he's talked to, he's just talking about like generals and philosophers. And like some, it's so imaginative. Quote I talked with the mind of Yang Li, a philosopher from the cruel empire of Shangcheng, which had come in in AD 5000, with that of a general of the great headed brown people who, ruled, who held South Africa in BC 50,000 with that of the 12th century Florentine monk named Bartolomo Corsi, with the king of Lomar, who had ruled that terrible polar land 100,000 years before the squat yellow Inuits came west to engulf it. End quote. That's, of course, a mention of Polaris, one of his first stories. Um, a nice circle there. One of his first stories and one of his last. I have that same mention. It's a little bit racist, but whatever. It's nice to have that shout out, I guess. Um, so my point is... They, 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 they go into the minds of these prominent people because that's who's hanging out with him in these Ithian bodies. And, and he's just an economics professor. <laughs> so why'd they take him? We're also told like the future of the Earth is going to be replaced, humans are going to be replaced by a beetle civilization. Um, there's a central library that they're allowed to explore. Um, now, it's all culminates in this realization, because they're time travelers, they're able to travel through time and space, that they know their civilization is doomed. They know they won't survive deep into the history. They know they're kind of declining and they're kind of, it's not ennui about it, but their stoicness about it, I think is really admirable. You know, they have their historical ups and downs. They were a, uh, an empire that had their great wars, their conflicts, their civil wars, all the things a great civilization has and they know they're declining as all civilizations will and they choose to then spend their efforts just learning more and expanding their library and and all that so there's something really really attractive about them I, i think a lot of readers dig this aspect of the of the great race let me think is there anything else to say oh they're 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 economic and political structure i'll end on that um there's, of course, a lot of details throughout this Chapter 4 about, uh, about society and of, of their, their city and their library and all that. But it's, it's relevant what he says about their economic system in, in, in contrast with some of the things Lovecraft was writing, I think, and you see in Volume 4 of his Selected Letters and some of the stuff he writes to Robert E. Howard, as we'll see later on, he writes, quote, the political and economic system of each unit was a sort of fascistic socialism, with major resources rationally distributed and power delegated to a small governing board elected by the votes of all able to pass certain educational and psychological tests. Family organization was not overstressed, though ties among persons of common descent were recognized and their young were generally reared by their parents. End quote. So just to be clear here, they they reproduce asexually, but, so they don't really have normal families, but they do have parental relationships, right? We're also told they're post-scarcity. Um, and one reason they have so much time to wander about space and time is because everything is kind of mechanized and their needs are met by a mechanized society so they're post-scarcity it's really a utopian vision of society in a way and we see in Lovecraft's letters him playing with this similar idea that when you have a machine culture you're going to have to have some sort of like technocratic leadership Right. But there's also the potential for he's realized there's the potential for some kind of post-scarcity sort of socialism. Right. If everyone's needs are met, this will, I guess, ideally allow people to explore their interests and and allow flourishing of culture. Right. But it also leads to overall cultural decadence, too. I I think he doesn't quite nail down if this is the cause of the Athenians' decline here, but certainly it's something he's thinking a lot about in his letters. I guess I want to leave it on that uh, I don't want to say too much more about this I, I have a whole other episode where I'll explore the other half and if there's anything else I want to come back and mention I will but I think that kind of covers the main ideas here so anyways that's going to be it for now uh, I'll give you my final thoughts about The Shadow of Time next time um, obviously I think it's a great story and I like it and I'm uh, I, I, it grows on me it, I used to not think that much of this story but like some of the other of his later stories, I'm appreciating it a lot more as I come back and really try to dig into them with a little more detail. So anyways, you can send me your own thoughts about the shadow out of time um, at my email address, 100pagescast at com, or you can reach me on Twitter, um, Evan Lampy one on Twitter. You can uh, leave a comment on or a review on iTunes. That'd be really helpful. Um, and... Most importantly, continue to listen to this podcast as I go down the hill, get to the final stretch. Um, we have got another probably 35 episodes, maybe, so that's another three, four months of episodes for at least. Uh, I might have to come back and do some cleanup. There's a lot of little poems and stories that I might have to, there's actually that romance story he wrote I never covered either. I have to, might have to come back and fill in that gap. But We'll see. Maybe I won't, I won't do it. Now, some people pressure me to, to fill all these gaps. I'm not, I don't think I need to necessarily, but there are gaps that could be filled. I might do that, um, but we'll see where it goes. At the very least, we got uh, all his later revisions, all the revisions he wrote after 1932, and then the, the Robert E. Howard letters, which uh, covers a broader period. It starts in 1928, at 29, I think maybe 1930, and through it, you know, to the end of Robert E. Howard's life anyways. Um, And those are really long, sprawling letters. We got most of the text of them, so they're not as edited down as they are in the selected letters. So it's, um, and that's just scratching the surface of the letters, right? There's so many, Hippocampus Press has published so many books of his letters. If I just keep, I mean, this will never end if I I don't, you know, close the door on it at some point. And, you know, I'm getting to that point where maybe I, I think, There's not much more to say about H.P. Lovecraft from my particular point of view. But, anyways, enough about that. See you next time as I finish up my thoughts on The Shadow Out of Time. Thanks for listening. Gee, it breaks my heart to see you day after day, turning away as much as to say. You've never known me, stranger. After sharing all your